thank you all for uh, for joining us this afternoon for our webinar on uh, higher education chaplaincy. Uh, we're having a little bit of some technical difficulties here with getting uh, some of our hosts into the um, into the webinar. So if you'll bear with me for just a moment, I'm trying to get a couple people in, <clears throat> and then we will get underway. Here we go. Okay. Here's John Schmalzbauer right there. My little trick worked. I was hoping I could sort of sneak him in the back door here and it seems to have worked. John, can you see us? See you. There we go. Perfect. Maybe could you um, angle down just a little bit so the light isn't right? There we go. That way the light's not blinding all of us. Perfect, perfect. Um, and so we are still waiting on, uh, on Tiffany Steinwert. Uh, out in Stanford, so hopefully she will join us here um, in just a minute. I think here's here's what we should do while we're waiting for Tiffany to come in uh, to talk about this very specific project. Uh, John, let me ask you if you could tell us a little bit about sort of what did the field look like before this project went off, which was sort of gets us at the impact of this and why it is so necessary. You've been involved in this uh, for a long time. Uh, and so it will help you just sort of set the stage for why this is a really important project. Before I do that, uh, Tiffany isn't here, so I, I forgot to introduce both of you. Uh, but we're joined today by Amira Qureshi, who is the Interim Dean um, for Religious Life at Wellesley College. Uh, and John Schmalzbauer is the, you have to help me with the name here, the Blanche Gorman Strong Professor uh, of Religious Studies, of Protestant Studies at Missouri State University, correct? Did I get the name right? That's right. Yeah. Very From good. The show me state here. Very good. So we're, we're very happy to have uh, John here, sort of from the, the pure academic side, and then Amira from the student life side. And then when Tiffany is able to get in, she will join us from the student life side as well. Anyway, uh, I, I sort of jumped in front of you, John. What did the field look like before this project got underway? Chaplaincy is an understudied world, I think. Um, and, you know, to get uh, full-length uh, books that are seriously studying it from a social scientific approach, you almost have to go back a ways to uh, the first study was done in the 1950s called the American College Chaplaincy uh, by a man named Seymour Smith, who was an early member of NACUC, the National Association of College and University Chaplains. Um, there was the Danforth Study of Campus Ministries, but it didn't focus so heavily on chaplaincy. Uh, there were books like Philip Hammond's The Campus Clergyman, which even the title tells you how dated it is, uh, you know, focusing presumably on men, clergy, and kind of had only a Protestant focus. Uh, fast forward, there are studies like uh, Religion on Campus, which looked at four college campuses in uh, the early 2000s, late 1990s. Uh, although it wasn't primarily focused on chaplains, chaplains were in there. Um, Another kind of gap is that not too many people looked at the student experience of chaplaincy. Uh, there are people that have written chaplaincy memoirs, uh, wonderful collections like Lucy Forster Smith's edited volume looking at multi-faith chaplaincy, uh, a lot of firsthand account of chaplains, uh, but not necessarily uh, finding out how does this experience from the student's point of view. The UCLA study on spirituality was great uh, but it focused more on the student quest than their involvement in any kind of uh, chaplaincy programs. So that's kind of the state of the field. And so we saw, I guess, a gap here in terms of 
you know, data in the field of chaplaincy, which I know Chaplaincy Innovation Lab founder Wendy Cadge has, has sort of made that kind of case across sectors of chaplaincy that there could be more data on what exactly are chaplains doing and how is that coming across? And I think maybe in healthcare, they're a little bit farther ahead in terms of uh, gathering some of that data. Yeah, in a lot of ways, uh, healthcare is kind of, uh, or the, rather the healthcare subset of chaplaincy is really leading the field in terms of uh, empirically produced data. And that's for lots of reasons, but it's a, it's a good model. Um, but as you said, so much of the field has focused on the chaplains themselves uh, and their experience that we haven't really gotten a good idea of what students on campuses are actually, um, how they're engaging with chaplaincy, if they're engaging with chaplaincy, uh, all of the, those sorts of questions. And so this uh, program is really a, a, an enormous first step, even though we're just establishing kind of um, very basic questions, but for all that, this is a really, uh, a really important project. Let me share the slideshow here. Um, and unfortunately, this was the, this was the part where we, we figured that Tiffany would be uh, our, our eloquent and engaging speaker. Uh, so I will have to step in a little bit here and, and summarize some of the, the beginning here. Let's bring this open right here. So you should be able to see our slides here. Uh, this project was funded by BTS Center uh, out of Maine under their Compass Grant program. And what we set out to do from the very beginning, uh, and I'm sorry, I hate to read from a slideshow, but that's exactly what I'm going to do. <laughs> uh, what we set to do from the very beginning is to map and articulate the work that chaplains do at colleges and universities, explore student engagement uh, with those colleges and university chaplains uh, in light of their emerging needs, and investigate the impact or the outcomes of that work. Let me just stop here for a moment and focus on that second part there of exploring student engagement in light of emerging needs. John, I think that's, that's sort of a, a twist or a complication of the fact that we have so little data on this is that the religious landscape or spiritual landscape of colleges and universities looks so different from even when those sort of older studies of, of chaplains themselves were being produced. Just the, the very basic religious spiritual demographic of college students is so much different nowadays. Um, in a lot of ways, they students are either sort of uh, representative or I think in some ways a little bit ahead of the demographic shift in the country as a whole. And so to get an idea of what uh, students are experiencing is actually uh, a, really, a really useful thing just to understand what it means uh, to be a chaplain uh, in American life in general, but certainly here specifically in the university context. Now, I don't want to, um, I don't want to step on, on uh, Amira's toes too much because she can speak uh, about the experience at Wellesley, but what we kind of went into this thinking was that there are rising needs around student well-being and mental health, and we, you can define that in lots of different ways. Um, either just in sort of the, the transitory phase that, that entering college uh, is, is sort of defines for a person's life, uh, but all the various other things, that, the things that they're bringing with them. I just spoke about the religious demographics on campus. We can skip right over that. And the shifting religious landscape as well, uh, that is kind of the backdrop to all of this. Um, Amira, I think this is a good opportunity that you can give us a little bit um, 
a little bit of, of sort of local color at Wellesley. What types of things are Wellesley students dealing with um, that we can sort of think about in light of, of higher ed chaplaincy before we move on to the specific data from this project? Right. Um, so uh, what I hear first, first and foremost is that uh, when, when talking with colleagues in other, at other institutions, uh, it's very much the same. Uh, students are struggling uh, with some uh, increased degree of, of stress and anxiety, as you mentioned, and uh, and also finding their purpose and having a sense of what they what you know a, a security in the future of what they want to do and how they're going to um, dedicate their life to what work they're going to do in their lives, and that's what our uh, chaplains um, find is really really meaningful work with students. Um, Amira, I won't press too hard on, on so, sort of really concrete numbers, but what is, is your impression of the sort of the religious spiritual demographic of Wellesley students, just to get an idea of where they're coming from, what, what, what places they're coming from? So uh, thanks for not pressing too hard on the numbers because I don't know. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, it's, uh, Wellesley, we, we are so proud of our institution for um, having and students say this in their reflections of their time at Wellesley is, um, is how valuable the diversity is on campus. Mm -hmm. So we have, um, uh, we have, I'm going to say roughly like six to 10% of Jewish students, Muslim students, um, uh, international students, I think the number is higher. Um, and um, I don't have the numbers in front of me about that, that are a testament to the, to the diversity. But um, was there another aspect of the, do you, that you wanted to know? No, no, no. I, th I think that's very helpful. Um, I want to advance the slideshow a little bit here because um, we're kind of setting up, we're setting up uh, why the, the study that we're, that we're here to talk about is so significant. Um, John, these numbers, these numbers are, are certainly within your wheelhouse. And this gets at the idea of some of the work that's been done before. Um, Tell us a little bit more about these studies and what they tell us about what students are experiencing uh, in this moment. Well, there's a palpable sense of uh, a mental health um, challenge, and some would say crisis, uh, depending on you know who's speaking to the issue on campuses. Uh, and uh, you can see that in the American College Health Assessment study here. You know. Uh, a very high percentage of students said they experienced overwhelming anxiety sometime in the past 12 months. 46% uh, said they felt so depressed it was difficult to function. Uh, I thought of these uh, data when I heard uh, uh, Varun Soni speak to this issue, the USC Dean of Religious Life, um, you know, talk about the mental health crisis on campus and students feeling alone sometimes in these struggles. And uh, it's not a brand new thing either, uh, although I think it's gotten a little bit worse. Uh, the founder of the MIT chaplaincy, uh, Robert Randolph, also spoke to this issue, uh, talking about the impetus for the uh, establishment of a chaplaincy at the Institute for the first time in its history was uh, concerns about suicide on campus. So I, I think that 
these kinds of worries, uh, which obviously a broader student affairs profession also looks at, uh, are really relevant to considering chaplaincy as well. Yeah, and I think that, um, I mean, obviously we don't want to get too fixed in on the numbers here, but that, that idea that 46% of students being so depressed they find it difficult to function, um, that, sort of, that sort of issue can be due to so many different reasons, but I think that what Amira was saying about uh, purpose, um, yeah. sort of existential questions and crises, certainly has a lot to do with it. Um, and just to move on here a little bit, uh, this, this gets at sort of responding to, to those things in a, in a medical way, but this sort of, uh, the rate of treatment for this sort of thing increasing by 19 to 34% in a 10 year period. Uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a sociologist or a psychologist, but it strikes me that that is, that is really, really big. <laughs> um, really big. Um, along with this percentage of students with lifetime diagnoses going up by 14% as well. As I said, that is due to so many different things, a lot of which is certainly has to do with self-reporting and, and a greater comfort with acknowledging these issues on the part of students. Uh, but in any case, I think that it does speak to a, an emerging reality of what students are dealing with uh, nowadays. John, I was just looking ahead to this next slide on demographics, and I'm hoping that you, can, that you can help me understand it because I am not exactly sure what this is a, a reference to. Aside, obviously, religious demographics, but demographics of what? Uh, this is an elite uh, college, uh, and you can see... Uh, just how diverse uh, student religious life is uh, in many campus situations in the United States. This would not necessarily be a typical college, but I think for some of our more selective institutions on the coasts, uh, you know, this is kind of the experience. And so you can see a high percentage of people with no religious identity, spiritual but not religious, separated out from those, uh, agnostic, atheist, and humanist, but also Muslim, Jewish, Hindu, Christian, and so forth, um, a Buddhist. And so uh, dealing with student religious life means uh, dealing with uh, here comes everybody, to quote uh, James Joyce, out of context. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm sure that, you know, Amira experiences this on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, in terms of a dean of religious life, they've been compared to uh, interfaith traffic directors or cruise directors. Um, and uh, you can kind of see how that would be the case. Uh, so that's, that's why uh, this was included, just to give a, uh, you know, we're not going to identify the school, but um, kind of what religious demographics can look like uh, in uh, many uh, higher education environments in the United States. I just want to add that I appreciate there being a, a separate section for multi-faith because we have seen more students um, uh, identify as, as, as two, two or more traditions. Uh, they you know, have a Hindu dad and a, and a Christian mom or um, you know, come from blended families where they really I, I connect with many faiths within their own lives and within their own families. So it's very um, a different phenomenon from the from the others.
And I'm, I'm very, very happy to welcome uh, Tiffany Steinwert, who is Dean of Religious Life at Stanford University. Tiffany, I was just telling everybody that this has been sort of a heck of a day uh, for tech troubles. We had issues with, uh, with John getting in. There was no power in the building an hour ago. <laughs> and so I'm glad that we're all just here in the same place at the same time. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but Tiffany was, was very much involved uh, in, in designing this project. Um, and so, Tiffany, what we're, we're sort of at the stage now where we're talking about the, uh, the, the hardcore data that's coming out of right. this. So we'll sort of circle back around to what that actually means in terms of, of on-the-ground religious life. John, let me go ahead and proceed uh, to the next slide here. And you can explain for us a little bit um, how this project was set up um, and what, what data we gathered from it. Okay, um, so uh, we just saw the chart from the small elite New England Liberal Arts College, just kind of a, a slice of uh, private higher education um, that you could find at many schools uh, in the United States uh, with uh, increasing diversity. And as Amira said, you know, even multi-faith individuals uh, and a multi-faith campus also. Uh, and so we wanted you to see that um, but as far as the Chaplaincy Innovation Lab project, one of the things that we did uh, to try to really get things going was to conduct focus groups on religious and spiritual life with chaplains, deans of religious life, and so forth. Uh, those were conducted uh, in February 2019 at the joint meeting of the two major college chaplaincy religious life organizations, NACUC, the National Association of College and University Chaplains, and a Core, the Association for College and University Religious Affairs. They met together in Albuquerque, so it was a nice opportunity to get some groups together there. Uh, and then we had a fifth focus group uh, that was uh, led by Shelley Rambo, uh, who teaches at Boston University and is one of the uh, principal investigators on the uh, BTS uh, chaplaincy project, uh, and that was in Boston. So, um, uh, the conversations focused on best and most challenging parts of the work. Uh, so what do you like best about your work? What's frustrating? Uh, assessment, which is sometimes what people uh, were frustrated with, and, and then the students. And these are some of the responses that we received in those focus groups. Um, many people said something like, people don't understand exactly what chaplains do, or they don't know what I do. Uh, or um, metrics are challenging, or they don't uh, really think the metrics that are applied to them are appropriate, mm -hmm. uh, that they do all this heavy work, and yet the metrics uh, are impossible, that they're not really a good fit. And so there's sort of a frustration that uh, chaplaincy could be much better understood, especially by external audiences in student affairs, um, college presidents, um, uh, the wider society. Now, John, I, I have not been sort of deep into to this data and, and the focus group responses, but what kind of metrics are campuses using, you know, in the cases of those chaplains who are frustrated with this, what kind of metrics are we talking about? Uh, I maybe like to refer that question to uh, Tiffany or Amira. I know it came up in the focus groups and Tiffany sat in on some of the focus groups, conducted them. Yeah, I think, you know, many college campuses right now are looking at um, 
similar processes to their colleagues in student affairs. So there is a wider conversation within religious and spiritual life in higher education as to whether or not our field is similar, alike, the same, or different from student affairs. Um, so student affairs are typically uses metrics that are designed around learning outcomes. They're designed around um, program attendance, so looking at who's mm -hmm. attending, how many students. Mm -hmm. And those metrics are really helpful for thinking about who's attending and why. And then the learning outcomes are really important in terms of thinking about, well, what is the value of what's happening? And I think for folks in religious and spiritual life, often they feel like, the learning outcomes are much harder to articulate, right? So if you're thinking about answering the question of who am I and who do I want to become for the sake of the world, how do you measure whether or not somebody has achieved that sense of meaning and purpose, yeah. right? Whereas if you're thinking about does somebody now understand something different about a particular cultural group or um, community group on campus, that's easier to assess. And so I think a lot of religious and spiritual life folks are are a little worried that the type of learning outcome-based, numbers-based assessments don't particularly fit the work that they do. I think, you know, it, it's a new way of imagining how we, how we assess or think about our work. I think it's vitally important that we do so and that we be involved in designing the metrics by which our work is assessed. Well, and we started at the beginning, uh, Tiffany, John gave us a, a sort of a, uh, a fantastically rich two-minute overview of the field up to this point. Uh, and one of the points that you made, John, was that so much of the work has been focused on chaplains up to this point. Uh, but, but even though this project is focused mostly on the student experience, it has told us a lot about, about chaplains as well, probably in, in new and different ways uh, that, that we have studied before. And so I think that's, that's definitely a line of thought uh, that needs to be pursued. Um, but in the meantime, we do need to talk about the students. Um, and so even as we think, well, how useful are numbers really? Let's talk about the numbers, John. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so uh, we're able to uh, administer a pilot survey at an elite liberal arts college in the fall of 2018. Um, we're grateful that that was able to happen. Uh, because this is really the first time that a lot of these questions have been asked of students about chaplaincy in campus ministry uh, and student religious life, uh, which we focused on chaplaincy, but some of those other um, words were in there as well. 40% right. uh, response rate, which is not bad, and a sample of 1,043, so uh, quite a number of cases to work with. And the questions focused on the religious and spiritual identities and practices of the students, uh, including uh, those with uh, no religious affiliation, uh, participation in chaplaincy programs, and measures of student well-being, which the hope is down the line to sort of see if there's a correlation between uh, participation in various programs or uh, religious and spiritual opportunities on campus and measures of student well-being. So um, I've been looking at these kinds of things for a long time, and. You know, Tiffany and Amira can uh, weigh in here as well, but I was quite surprised, even though I know these things matter on campus, and we have the UCLA study from about 12 years ago, 15 years ago, uh, that showed students are interested in spirituality. It was still quite interesting to see that 85% of the students at this elite school have an interest in spirituality, 
Uh, 48% are on a spiritual quest. And then a question that I thought was really, I'm so glad that it was on there. 65% feel unsettled about spiritual or religious matters. Uh, and in terms of spiritual practices, um, it's not everybody uh, who is uh, involved in spiritual practices, but it's a, it's a substantial critical mass of students, I think. Um, and, you know, we had other measures also that, you know, we just can't cover all of it in this webinar uh, that are specific to various religious traditions around the world. 37% uh, pray at least once a week. 31% attend a religious service at least monthly. 27% engage in religious singing or chanting at least monthly. 23.9% read a sacred text at least monthly. Uh, and then, you know, smaller percentages uh, say that they will read a spiritual religious text of some kind. Um, so the practice as well as the identity are, are there on this campus. You know, and, and I note that uh, I, I should I should take a minute to say that you know the some of the some of the language even here is is a little bit um, may not apply to all students who would identify themselves as having spiritual practices things like prayer services chanting sacred text but we did we did um, phrase the questions on the survey to be as broad as sort of intellectually possible because we wanted to cover the gambit from sort of the, the, the very traditional denominationally oriented, you know, regular churchgoer, all the way to those who, who have no religious or spiritual identification, but still find themselves engaging in some kind of meaningful activity. Um, and so we did try to, to phrase things as broadly as possible. But this and next I, slide, sorry, go ahead. Before we move on, what I want to do is I want to point out the difference between the percentage of students who say that they're interested in spiritual life, which is 85%, versus the percentage of students who are, who are engaging in practices that we might consider kind of traditional religious practices. And I think actually it's not a flaw in the study, Michael. I, I think it's actually a really helpful tool for us to think about the way in which students think about spirituality is very different than how traditional institutions of religious life might define them. So there's a high interest in spirituality, 85% of students. And yet the students who are engaged in what we consider traditional religious activities or spiritual disciplines is relative, is significantly lower. So the question is, is what's happening to the students who are not engaging? How are they living out their spiritual life? And I think that's the central question for religious and spiritual life professionals, right? How, how do we capture that other percentage of students? Right, right. It makes me think, think of Elizabeth Drescher's work on, uh, uh, she talks about the four Fs of spirituality, food, Fido, friends, and family and you know ways that people find spirituality outside of the kinds of things that we asked and you know if we were to do this again which i think we will do something like this again uh, and i think yeah figuring out what are we missing because uh, as tiffany pointed out that there's a real gap there and, and it may be that we're not offering those things in college campuses i mean that may that may be part of it yeah it could have implications for uh, both the researchers but also for programming absolutely So we're looking at a chart here um, 
that is about the programming. And um, there's not so much of a gap here. 85% uh, interested in spiritual kinds of concerns and 78.8% have attended programs that chaplains have helped to organize on this particular campus. 62% uh, have participated in programs organized by the chaplains. That's kind of another way of asking the same question. 43% uh, have participated in on-campus religious services. 29.5%, getting a little more specific, uh, just one example of the many types of programs we asked about, meditation, uh, letters sponsored by the chaplains. 26% um, of vigil or service following a death, which you know, is all too often the kind of tragic circumstances that chaplaincy responds to. Uh, but you know, that's one out of four. 15.6% uh, have had pastoral counseling, pastoral care with a chaplain, which when I see that, I think that's a lot of demand. That's a lot of hours for the chaplaincy staff. And um, this campus, fairly high levels of satisfaction, very high levels of satisfaction, actually, uh, super majorities in terms of uh, questions like, I've had opportunity to practice the spirituality of my choice at this particular institution, 92.3%. The college makes room for my spiritual religious tradition, 89.8%, uh, which I think is remarkable given the diversity on many campuses today. Uh, the college also provides an inclusive environment for the non-religious, 95.2%. I feel welcome or able to seek support from religious life office, 75%, and I have found a community of belonging in religious life office, 34.4%, a little bit lower, uh, but I think those who have, that may be kind of the shock absorber for uh, dealing with a lot of uh, challenges that we talked about earlier in the, in the webinar, uh, in terms of um, anxiety or um, the, the storms of life that you experience at uh, any age, but especially that age, perhaps. Tiffany and Amira, I'm wondering if you could comment a little bit on what, to me, looks like a gap, but maybe it's maybe it's it's not. I'm happy to be corrected, but we have on the top here what seems like a really high percentage of students who are engaging in these sorts of things. Um, they feel that, that there is space for this, that they've had opportunities to practice, uh, like the top line there. But that's not the same as seeking support from the religious life office. Does that mean that, that there are sort of active communities of practice on campus that are just, that, that, that don't have a relationship from relig with religious life offices? Is that, is that the case? And if so, should there be an attempt to kind of connect those two things uh, to make a, sort of a bigger community. Amar, I'm wondering if, if you want to start. Sure. So the, there are a number of students who um, who find their religious communities and practices off campus. Um, as as you probably know, the history of how the religious life on campus has has um, has thrived has largely been a result of having access to religious institutions in the geographical location of the college. So um, that's another uh, piece of this conversation around chaplaincy that would be interesting to, to talk about. Um, and, and it's an interesting question about how, how on-campus chaplains engage with those uh, spiritual advisors 
off campus. Um, th those groups that do meet, so there's, it's, it's, it's tricky because um, students obviously can go and find their own religious traditions off campus, their communities off campus. They will also bring those people to campus and those, those uh, spiritual advisors may or may not know well the college culture or policies. So that can um, introduce some, some challenges to helping all students on campus feel like it, they are part of a, um, a, a multi-faith environment that respects and appreciates everyone uh, within the campus. It's if those because th those other students may be going off campus to find their groups and their their religious mm -hmm. uh, communities and not bring that into the campus in a fully integrated way, but more of a private way. Mm -hmm. Tiffany, did you want to add to that? Well, I, I also wonder, you know, it's hard to understand how students interpret community of belonging. So mm -hmm. that phrase, mm -hmm. right, I think means a lot of different things to different people. I wonder if the lower number has to do with the saliency of identity of religious identity for students. Mm -hmm. So on many college campuses, you know, how students choose to identify themselves is an ongoing question and it's fluid over the course of their time. Many students might see their primary identities based on gender or sexual orientation, race, culture, ethnicity, even class. And I think religion has sometimes been included in that sense of saliency of identity and sometimes it hasn't. And I think it depends particularly if you are part of a dominant religious group or a non-dominant religious group as to how salient that religious identity is for you. Um, it may also be a question of how many for students a community of belonging, you know, how much is that religious community your primary community? That might be what that's measuring. Um, if that's the case for students to have, for 34% of students to find their primary community of belonging in religious life, I, I think that's actually phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, I think it's higher than some people might predict. Um, uh, even having taken into consideration uh, what both of you have mentioned, the, you know, off-campus groups, which in this particular survey, open-ended question, there was a very long list of things that people were involved, both on and off campus. Um, you know, if you're in a major metropolitan area, those things are available, or even in a medium-sized city. Um, and yeah, there are other sources of solidarity and community on campus. Uh, so, but I think, you know, 34%, it, it's, it's not a tiny group. Right. So the next uh, set of slides look at some very exploratory research where we're trying to figure out, is there a relationship between involvement in campus religious programs or officially sponsored campus services or events and some outcomes uh, or other practices? And this is very exploratory uh, and it's tricky because Say we found that uh, people who attend campus religious programs or spiritual life programs from the chaplain's office are, are more likely to uh, have anxiety or depression um, or, or to say that that's higher. That may mean that they're seeking out those kinds of things, not that there's a causal relationship. Uh, you know, it's very chicken and egg uh, in some ways. Um, 
so that's sort of a caution in looking at some of these slides, which uh, this one uh, is a simple cross tabulation looking at how much people are involved in re regular service attendance uh, or service attendance at all and uh, the practice of daily self-reflection. And so you can see a little bit of a relationship here uh, and we haven't really looked at tests of statistical significance on this, but 38.9% of re regular service attenders say they engage in daily self-reflection. Uh, that's quite a bit higher than the sometimes and non-attenders. Although there's not much difference at all, I doubt it'd be statistically significant between the sometimes attenders and the non-attenders on this. So, I mean, I thought that's interesting, but it's not, it's not clear, is it that daily reflection leads people to participate in services or the other way around, or is there something else that is the underlying uh, explanation here? Um, there is also some data on, um, do you find support or did you find support for wrestling with the big questions on campus uh, while you were at this particular institution? And here, there's a real robust association with participation in chaplaincy programs. Uh, this is a slightly different question. It's not about services and attending services. It's about uh, how much did you participate in chaplaincy programs, regular sometimes or not at all. And of those who were regular participants, 87% found support for wrestling with big questions. Uh, they agreed that they found support. And 36% strongly agreed that they found support for wrestling with those big questions. If you compare that to the sometimes participants, uh, it's a little bit lower. And non-participants, it's still a majority uh, on this particular campus. 56% of non-participants found support for wrestling with big questions, but it's quite a bit lower than participants in chaplaincy programs. And uh, only 10% strongly agree. So there does seem to be a, a pretty robust association between hanging out in chaplaincy programs and feeling like you were able to get some support for asking questions of purpose, which we you know, heard about earlier uh, being so important in chaplaincy. So I'm, I'm sure there are some um, responses from our chaplains here to these kinds of associations. I think, you know, another thing I've heard from, from students and, and chaplains uh, is the special space that chaplains provide um, on campus where we are not grading our students. They feel safe. They feel like they can open up and, um, and you know, be vulnerable and, um, and, and it's not a transactional relationship. So I think that that setup allows for um, us to, to help students with these big questions from, from the start. Yeah, it's a different kind of relationship, uh, which you know, in the focus group, the, the chaplains often talked about walking alongside students, accompanying them, um, and they're not grading them while they're walking alongside them. Um, uh, so um, another thing that, you know, we saw that chart of how diverse some campuses can be uh, in terms of religious diversity, and there are other forms of diversity too. Uh, and there's a real connection, I think, between exposure to that diversity, because you can stay in your silo on a very diverse campus, or you can uh, be in regular interaction with those from different backgrounds. 
Uh, and again, a robust correlation between participation in chaplaincy programs uh, and students agreeing that they've engaged with someone from a religious or spiritual background other than their own. So if you're a regular participant in chaplaincy programs on this campus, 89% say, yeah, there's a, I've engaged with someone from a different background. Of non-participants, it's still pretty high, and it would be hard not to engage with some kind of diversity on the campus that we looked at. Uh, but it's at a little under 50%. Uh, of non-participants. So if you're involved in chaplaincy programs on this campus, you're much more likely to say that you've engaged with someone from a different religious or spiritual background, which I don't know if that's true of the chaplaincy programs uh, that, you know, our uh, deans of religious life are familiar with around the country, you know, uh, but it seems to be a theme in chaplaincy today, you know, the books on multi-faith chaplaincy uh, and uh, the growth of the interfaith movement. Uh, but this seems to be real confirmation that something's happening. I'm curious about what that means for um, sort of qualitative changes in our society. You know, wondering, it, I, I would be really curious what, what happens within students when they do uh, engage in this way. Are they, um, are, are they developing empathy or, or, you know, are they gaining like as Tiffany mentioned, like what are the learning outcomes? Does it does it help them in engaging in conversation that um, allows for for people to feel comfortable talking about their religious and spiritual um, parts of their lives? I think what's interesting about all of this data is that um, typically these elite colleges are very um, liberal leaning, and students who are religious uh, are feel that they can't speak about their traditions, yet there is in the practices of their beliefs or what guides them, um, how they problem solve, how they, um, how they think about national policy or global policies. And, uh, and this data shows that there's, that they're, that they really do um, feel very satisfied in many ways, and also have, um, have very positive outcomes in, 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 well, actually I should, I should backtrack there. This does not necessarily say positive outcome. It's just that they're engaged in with, with people in a multi-faith environment in, in, in involvement. Um, but there's a high number of people who do that, but I'm curious to see whether or not that is positive and how that changes their, their, the way they interact with others and the way they see themselves, their role in, in college, in, in society going forward. Um, I also think that there's, what's interesting here is that the, in order to be able to do this, I'm wondering what the skill set is. I'm a chaplain myself, so I have some idea, but I think that it's important to note that in order to do this, have this kind of um, engagement, you, we need to help students have the language for how to have conversations, how to say things in a way that doesn't offend or put someone else off or shut them down in conversation so that the learning um, stays open. Yeah, I love what you said about, um, you know, what actually is changing in the students? Uh, is it more empathy? Is it more appreciation? And yeah, it would be really hard to tell without more qualitative ways of getting at some of these things, sitting down and and interviewing people, having them tell stories. And uh, at 
the National Association of Colleges and University Chaplains Acora gathering in Albuquerque. That's what people said, you know, in the uh, discussion of data is we want to have some narrative and story uh, data too. And so I think this is a spur to that. So thanks for, uh, I mean, raising that because I think that's maybe the next way to go. Well, I, I think that there's a lot of possibility with this data set, John, and you've done tremendous work um, unearthing the possibilities for it. But I'm really struck at the difference between when measuring students' spiritual practices versus their engagement with chaplaincy, which are often sometimes very different, right? So they're, they may, what is the difference between spiritual practices on a student's outcomes versus chaplaincy engagement? Are they related? Are they not? Right? So we didn't see a large amount of difference between students who attended service, but we did see a large amount of difference in chaplaincy programs. You know, you know this really well, John and, and Michael too, and Amr as well, uh, that most of the research to date in higher education has been done on looking at quote unquote spirituality or spiritual practices. And, and there's actually a lot of data that shows that engagement in spiritual life increases traditional student outcomes. But if this data suggests that in fact those outcomes may be even more enhanced by direct participation with institutionally sponsored chaplains. That's phenomenal news, one, for colleges and universities who desperately need to help students in this time of crisis, and two, for chaplains whose work is often undervalued because we don't have the tools to articulate what we're doing. This gives us the tools to do that. Yeah, private spiritual practices uh, may help some uh, psychological well-being, but I think you almost need a structured conversation to reach across differences. And that requires, uh, you know, organized programming sometimes. It can take place in the dorm too, but you know, people sort themselves by tables in the cafeteria in high schools and that happens in collegiate life too. Well, it also requires chaplains to be really well integrated with the college and college partners so that, you know, it, it would be, to be relevant, you know, to address those issues as they come up um, so that you have a relationship with your resident life director uh, and or, or the career education and you're there when things come up. Students are less likely to show up to an event. I'm going to talk about, um, you know, I'm going to talk about this issue at, on Wednesday at, at 3 p.m. It's really hard to conjure up your feelings around something um, in between classes. So it's important for chaplains to have those relationships so they can really support um, the, the life of the student as they're going through their experiences. Uh, that throws a, a monkey wrench into things when you look back at the data on the pastoral care. John, you noted how high the pastoral care is and how many, how many hours um, chaplains spend time doing that. So um, that's a interesting question well whether how where where's that what is prompting that pastoral time to take place is it um, a result of these the having a connection with say the resident life directors and students then come to chaplains or are the or the students coming to chaplains for, for pastoral care anyway um, it looks like it's it just increases the number of hours that chaplains put in yeah, and the focus groups, uh, it was so varied. Some people said nobody will refer anyone to us. They don't trust religious and spiritual kinds of uh, 
sectors. You know, it wasn't even personal. It was, uh, and then other campuses were overwhelmed. Uh, were the relief pitchers or the triage or the, you know, a lot of metaphors they use to talk about. Uh, and we don't have the staff to handle this and the counseling center doesn't either. But sometimes there's a good relationship uh, across that. I don't know what it appears like to a student if they can see when there's a seamless kind of uh, relationship between student affairs and chaplaincy and when there's tension or maybe just uh, two ships passing in the night and not I interacting. Yeah, I would say I don't think students can distinguish. Yeah. Everything at the college is the college, right? Yeah. They don't know about our divisions or our tensions or who works for who or what the, that, you know, how that figures into it. It's one student experience for them. Yeah, they don't have an organizational chart in their wallets. Uh, faculty, sadly, don't even know the organizational chart at their institutions, who's VP of what, or uh, on the student affairs side very often. Right, right. And yeah, so, and they should. Tiffany and Amira, I'm wondering, with both of you being in, in leadership positions, what does what does a project like this, what does data like this do for you? You know, in the next, thinking about your your departments and your divisions over the next three to five years, how is this data helpful both in serving students and in your kind of place in the organizational structure? Well, I could say. Um... Here at Wellesley, we have been lucky to have uh, you know, had have a multi-faith chaplaincy for many years. Um, most of us are part-time, so we uh, that that means just for practicality of life that there's there can be a significant turnover in our chaplaincies and hard to maintain that the staff. Um, so this this information could help support um, rethinking of, of structure of staffing um, maybe um, maybe helping out with uh, thinking of thinking more deeply about what um, I don't want to say programs but you know strategic vision for what chaplains will do on campus uh, and how, how it will be integrated with the college yeah I mean I, I I've been involved with this project from the beginning and I find that I'm astounded by the, the data that we received. It's better than I imagined that it could be. I mean, I've been working in religious and spiritual life and higher education for some time, and I know how powerful the work that we do is. I didn't really expect it to come out in the numbers quite as much as it did, right? And I think that's part of the narrative that we have in religious and spiritual life and higher education is that the metrics don't measure what we really do, numbers can't figure it out, right? But actually, that's not true. <laughs> we can see really clear impact of chaplaincy programs. And I think for me, one, that means in our own institutions, we need to be able to talk about the role that we have on campus and keep it at the center of a, a, of a higher education, right? So it's not about if, if, if something has to go, let's cut off chaplaincy. No, actually, chaplaincy is absolutely integral to the values, the goals, the mission, the aim of what higher education is meant to do. So, so that's a, it's an individual argument on that level. I really think a lot about the field in general. And so I think this data tells us what students need, where are they getting it, how are they getting it, what impact it has in their lives. And it helps us to think about then 
when students go for training, either in divinity school or even to become student affairs professionals, perhaps, um, what are we teaching them? How are we training the next generation of religious and spiritual life professionals? What are the competencies they need? What are the skills? When we hire somebody, because now we've gone and we've shown the data to our, our president and they've said, yes, you can hire three full-time chaplains. <laughs> who do we hire? Yeah. And how do we discern who is the right person to come into that? Chaplaincy looks radically different than it did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, most certainly 50 years ago. But our models for educating chaplains are still 50 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, there's also a Chaplaincy Innovation Lab project on chaplaincy education, right? Uh, and I mean, that's a challenge, right? Uh, and it's so many different religious traditions at the table and so many different models, you know, is, I mean, is the MDiv going to cut it for everybody anymore or master in religious studies or uh, it, it seems like uh, an exciting time of ferment for the field, but yeah, how, how do you prepare somebody for this type of environment? I think the first generation of people who saw a lot of these changes were sort of entrepreneurial, uh, trying to figure out as they went and what they learned in um, training often didn't cover these things at all. Yeah. Well, and you're sort of dealing with a, a religious and spiritual demographic of not only universities, but just the country as a whole, that's changing so much, so much more quickly than educational paradigms can or maybe should change. I mean, obviously, you, you sort of want training models to evolve kind of naturally and at a deliberate pace. But even while that's happening, the religious demographic is changing so quickly. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's always a catch-up game, but it seems like now um, it's, even, you know, it's even harder to, to catch up to that. And so you're right, the lab uh, is, is connected with another project that's doing just that. And so we're, we're very excited about that. Um, I want to be mindful of, of everyone's time here. So let me just finish by asking, you know, we said at the outset, this is a pilot project. We know that uh, we just intended this to set out sort of uh, a baseline, not, maybe not even a baseline, but just get a snapshot at one place of what does this look like. Um, and that in itself has given us more information. Like Tiffany said, you were so amazed at the at, at what it told us, like the results are just incredibly useful. But what's the next step? What can we find out next that's going to be more helpful? Um, you know, Tiffany and Amira, you, you all have uh, sort of one answer on that from the religious affairs side. And John, you have another answer from the academic side. But, you know, what does the next step look like? Um, I, I'll just, um, my answer is going to be related to the just, just prior conversation. Um, because I, I, and it has to deal with um, question. I have questions about the spiritual advisors off campus. Uh, and um, so also I was prompted to co-found the Association of Campus Muslim Chaplains, um, largely because Muslim chaplaincy is, is very young and the majority of Muslim chaplains are, um, are a volunteer. They, yeah. And they may or may not have any training in chaplaincy, most likely do not have any training in chaplaincy. And as you said, it's changing so much on campus that they really need um, support and training. That was one of my initiatives was for camp for those chaplains to get um, get training for their for their jobs that um, that they weren't being offered because the colleges often don't uh, really recognize 
their their involvement on campus. They just outsource it. Or any of you have even had conversations with with um, student affairs professionals who are like, we can't we can't talk about religion at all on campus. It's all outsourced. It's out, outside the boundaries of the college. So helping those off campus or um, what I mean by off campus advisors are people who are not employed and integrate employed by and integrated into the college but rather are just an, um, outsourced to, to students and helping those people understand what, it, what the college experience and the administration is like. Um, I think I'm curious to know what their experiences are as well. Yeah, a lot of groups are turning to off-campus because of budgetary kinds of uh, concerns. I mean, Muslim chaplaincy, I think, has been a period of growth, but in communities where there's been a contraction uh, and you know, increasing budgets, sometimes the off-campus provider is a way, you know, where someone can spend a third of their time or something like that. But yeah, those off-campus providers aren't necessarily getting the training or even the on-campus providers. You know, very few Muslim chaplains are able to go to through a program like Hartford, right? That would be a minority of uh, the uh, practitioners. So studying, you know, how that happens. I really hope that we're able to replicate these results on other and more diverse college campuses so that we're able to get a sense of what religious and spiritual life looks like across the continuum of higher education. I, I think that's going to be really important. So a, a wider variety of institutions participating. I think it would be fantastic to standardize a tool that we could offer to campuses to help them learn how to assess. So what we've heard from chaplains is they don't know how to assess or the metrics don't measure them. Mm -hmm. Well, it looks like these might. And so can we fine tune the tool and then offer it to, to communities to begin to do that? And then to really think about how do we network the field in order to be able to think deeply together about what this data tells us and what directions it points us to in the future. Yeah, it's so important because uh, there's such a pluralism of institutions, too. Um, you know, to use the language of uh, the Jacobsons and uh, No Longer Invisible, uh, you know, there's one-party rural campuses, there's uh, uh, very diverse campuses, uh, there's uh, a lot of mixed models of how chaplaincy is structured. So we'd encourage people who are interested in doing this on their campus, uh, this, this uh, particular uh, project is winding down, but I think a lot of us are interested in looking at those kinds of things down the line on other campuses. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, well, we've reached two o'clock here, so let's go ahead and wrap up and everyone can continue their afternoon. Uh, and I will thank all three of you all for, for a wonderful conversation. I apologize for the, the difficulties we had at the beginning, but I think once we overcame them, this was a great, this was a great conversation. Uh, we're, we're grateful today for Amira Qureshi, who is Interim Dean of Religious Life at Wellesley College, uh, John Schmaltzbauer, who is a sociologist at uh, Missouri State University, and Tiffany Steinward, who is Dean of Religious Life at Stanford. Thank you all. Um, I will remind everyone that this is recorded. We'll put it up on the website along with the slides. And uh, there are a couple of, a little bit of back and forth in the chat. Uh, we'll put that up there as well. And we hope that you will share it far and wide. Uh, all right. Thank you, everybody, and have a wonderful afternoon. Bye-bye.